This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Great to be here. It's funny. I, I usually, if there's very funny email that I get, I usually wait until Tuesday. We do a dedicated segment all about the email. Uh, love mail, hate mail. If it's witty, if it's interesting, if it's different, if it's creative, I will read it on Tuesday. More on that uh, later. But there's one piece of mail that I cannot avoid reading and bringing to your attention, because I'm sure there are a lot of people that feel this way. This is from a listener named Maria. No subject, but I think she says it all when she says the following in this email. I'll listen tonight just to hear Steve Cates that you stole from Coast. Otherwise, you're a snoozer. Now, I certainly disagree that I'm a snoozer. I I happen to think I'm very exciting, very compelling, and I've kept uh, more people awake in this city than uh, bad Mexican food. That being said, I think that if you do not like anything about me, anything about this show, anything that I do or say on a regular basis, you are going to want to listen loudly, turn up the volume on your radio, mobile phone, computer, smart device, whatever, or your, your smart speaker, Because for the next hour, you are going to be treated to a bevy of information and maybe even a little entertainment from Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space, and one of our most popular guests. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, Frank, good morning. Good to be back here on 77 WABC. And hey, how about that day? Now that it's moved one day forward in time, 2-2-22, which we've been talking about here in Phoenix and on media, we call it a palindrome. That's a weird name, and I had to look this up myself. A palindrome is a word or a sequence that's the same forward or backwards. So if you, obviously it took the date of 2-2-22. That's easy to understand, but it'd be like words like civic or kayak. So isn't that unusual? But imagine what it's going to be like when it returns, uh, turns to June 6th. Of 2066. Uh, well, is, th- is that the next uh, palindrome date? Well, no, we'd have, obviously, we have to have, what, March the 3rd oh, right. of, okay. of uh, 2033, so a long-distant future. But, hey, I thought that was kind of cool that uh, I learned something myself today in the, the new word palindrome. So, I see, I did know what a palindrome was, and it's always a very challenging qu- uh, category on Jeopardy. The trick is not just remembering words like uh, radar, but once it gets into sentences, like oh, yeah. uh, like Madam, I'm Adam, or or Never Odd, or even to try and come up with it as fast as those Jeopardy contestants, I, I'm just I'm just lost. Now uh, yep. we have seen a lot of records being set, but one of the records that has not gotten some of the attention that some sports records has have of late, and uh, maybe even some political records, has to do with the sun. Four days ago, there was a headline that said the sun has been erect, uh, erupting non-stop this month, and giant flares are incoming. Three days ago, another headline, solar prominence breaks record on active sun. Five days ago, the sun has erupted non-stop all month, and there are more giant flares coming. For starters, Steve, what's behind all of this solar activity, and what does it mean for those of us that are forced to live here on Earth? Well, Frank, it's an interesting series of questions, but we begin, of course, with the solar cycle 25. Each of these solar cycles, they're spaced about 11 and a half years apart, and sometimes they stretch longer or shorter. But what we're finding out here, the scientists and astrophysicists that kind of predict what these, you know, just like the stock market, they're not always right as far as future trends. But this one, they were saying solar cycle 25 may not be as intense as what we had in the past, but I'm kind of thinking differently, and here's the reason, just like you mentioned before, big news, big headlines. Just the other day, the European Space Agency confirmed with its solar orbiter spacecraft, they captured, as you mentioned, this amazing big prominence, and what is that? It's outgassing material from the upper areas of the sun. The visible disk of the sun, as I've mentioned on a few of our other shows, is called the photosphere. 
and that's about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Ouch. And the sun is too hot to burn because it's a big fusion ball. But this one, Frank, has stretched outward probably, and say I say probably because nobody knows the exact distance because it's a fluid type of thing, meaning it's in motion, about 2 million miles away and outward from the sun. But lucky for us, the interesting news here so everybody can sleep well and hopefully sleep in peace for the next couple of days because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, that this particular blast was not directed at the Earth. And if it was, there would be a lot of news that would be probably equally as important to what's happening with the invasion in the Ukraine. But this is interesting, Frank. Just think about this. The diameter of the sun is 864,000 miles to be almost pre, you know, precise. So this object, this big blast of material off the surface of the photosphere, stretches out. And you can see it in some of the images, which are quite interesting. And on various websites, you can actually see the entire video, which could last probably only about 25 seconds. But isn't that amazing, Frank? I mean, that's incredible. So the point is, we don't really know what's going to happen with this solar cycle, not to alarm people. But just remember this, that particular group of uh, you know, solar activity, as we call it, was probably from a region we called Active Region 2936. And in simple language, each of these sunspot groups are called active regions. And that was the number that they assigned to this one since the beginning of other solar cycles. But what's amazing about this, Frank, and I'll be brief, is that the spot that actually was on the sun when we did our last show a couple of weeks ago has continued to go around the far side of the sun and has returned. But this time, and they don't normally last that long, it's now Active Region 2954, and get set, because if this one starts to evolve, well, let's hope and uh, do our, you know, dance or whatever we do to keep out the solar rays. But nobody knows. It's probably going to be a much more intense solar cycle. Well, when you say what could happen in terms of disruptions to things like radio waves, electronics or or technology here? Well, Frank, if we get on the scale, the highest scale of these solar flares, we, we call them an X level flare, the way up at the top, high up in the alphabet. If that were to come as a direct blast toward the Earth, we could see, and again, not to be alarmist here, but to be factual and answer the question, is we could see some serious disruptions of the satellite communications we have, the GPS systems that we have, not only the United States, but other nations that use their own internal GPS, I'm sure like Russia and China and other countries and third world nations. But it's also interesting that as we see in the past, the great railroad storm, the great railroad solar storm, almost about 100 more years ago in 1921, I've mentioned this before, it actually set telegraph lines on fire because mm. of the induction of so many of these protons. This is what you have to be careful of. The, the protons from the sun, very powerful. They seemingly go through lots of things, and they pass through bodies very quickly. So who knows? But uh, on a more serious answer, let's just hope that we don't see any direct line of sight like a shotgun blast would be directed right toward the earth. Mm, uh, that is for sure. Talking with Steve Cates, he's my guest for the hour. If you want to call in with a question on anything that's happening in space or with respect to astronomy, give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Steve, I've heard from a lot of listeners that you've yes. got them doing the same thing that you've got me doing, which <laughs> is staring at the night sky, maybe with binoculars, maybe with a telescope, and trying to look at the different interesting things that are in the sky on a regular basis. If people turn their heads upward right now, hopefully they won't do it while they're driving, what can yeah. they find in the night sky? Well, Frank, as we find the moon to be moving on to its last quarter phase, we just had that fantastic, every month I consider the full moon to be beautiful, the appropriately named full snow moon. We find that the moon wanes now. So what people can see if you have a clear sky Obviously, many of the planets, the big activity for planets, Frank, is going to appear in the morning sky. And I'm going to suggest this weekend, if your skies are clear in the WABC listening area, of course, we pray for that, as all the time, so people can see things. Even in brightly lit areas like New York City, let's say right in the city environs, if you were to look into the southeast sky just about an hour before sunrise, let's say toward the weekend, to be precise, you're going to get to see this most magnificent conjunction. What I'm talking about is the planet Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, what an amazing planet, how bright, appropriately named, and obviously one of the closest planets. We've mentioned before that Venus, of all the major planets of the solar system, gets even closer than the planet Mars. And people always thought that Mars was the closest interloper or planet. Venus can get within 25 million miles of the Earth. But now, Venus happens to appear close to the Earth, not at an all-time closeness, and it appears like a crescent shape. So 
So if you're looking with the naked eye, it's just simply beautiful. And the conjunction of that with the moon, I think, makes that a most memorable event as we move into the weekend. And that should be something quite spectacular for people to see. But, Frank, we also have some other late-breaking things that people can actually see. And then we talk about Earth satellites. So if people have a pen or, you know, when they write this down, a pencil, I'll repeat this if we have time. Mm. Two of the major Earth satellites that you can actually see, one, of course, the natural big one in the sky, the International Space Station, makes another passage right over the New York listening area and viewing area on the morning of February the 24th. That happens during the early morning hours, like around 5 a.m. But what you want to be seeing is this object is going to be very bright. So that's about 28 hours from now. Absolutely. And it's going to be passing right by the North Star. So if you're looking in the northern part of the sky and your sky is clear, the North Star is not the brightest star, but it's pretty easy to see. So as you see this object slowly moving through the sky, it'll be going from the north to the northeast part of the sky. What you're actually seeing, if you actually see it live, you're actually seeing it as if it was traversing right over Toronto, Canada. So the angle that you're seeing that is it's far to the north, but from us, how far is Toronto from the New York area? What, maybe four or 500 miles as we would drive, but maybe less if we fly. But here's something else that I think is also fa- fascinating. If you want to have an opportunity, you will have an opportunity to see the Chinese Tiangong Space Station on the early morning hours of February the 26th, Saturday morning, at exactly 5.37 a.m. local time. High in the south at that time, with clear skies, you'll see this object moving, not as bright as the space station, but still pretty much easy to see with the naked eye, as about an average bright star in the sky, moving high from the south to the east in the sky. But if folks want to do more precision work on this, here's the site that we always recommend for this. Go to heavens-above.com, heavens-above.com. And it's so fun, Frank, because what people can do, and I've done it many, many times at an outdoor barbecue, let's say, and I tell people, you know, in five minutes, over the top of that tree, the space station is going to show up. And they go, what are you talking about? Well, sure enough, you did the calculations, like everybody listening. Just plug in your city. You can get to see which objects are coming by. And lo and behold, just like clockwork, isn't that incredible? The largest man-made object in space Yeah, it flew right over the top of the tree and over the barbecue, and people were like, now that is pretty cool. So you can do that yourself. Now, the International Space Station that's going to be in our viewing area tomorrow, that's something that we can view with the naked eye? That's not something that we're going to need uh, anything special for? No, the naked eye on this one, as we talk in magnitudes here, and I don't want to get overly precise, but just want to give people the right answer always. Yeah, thank you. Here it is. If you look at the brilliance of objects in the sky, the higher the negative number, what we call magnitude, the brighter. The brightest thing in the sky is the sun. It checks in on that side of the scale, on the negative side, at a 26. A full moon is a minus 12. And then we have Venus at about minus 4. So if you've ever seen Venus in the sky, or you will when you look into the southeast or in the early morning hours, this object, the ISS, is about minus 3. So the answer is simple. You don't need a pair of binoculars to see it. It is the brightest of the man-made objects in the sky. And in many cases, there are actually people. I, I, I am, it's amazing. I'm just totally amazed, Frank, how they do this. Some have the fairly large telescope with the motor drive, and they follow it and take pictures. And guess what you can see? Because it's only about 260 miles up as you would go from the ground. You can see all the detail on the space station with all the solar panels and all the modules attached, and even some of the little spacecraft that do attach to bring astronauts and cosmonauts back. And that's amazing, but remember, it's only about 260 miles right above your head. Wow. Uh, 800-848-WABC, if you've got questions, uh, 1-800-848-9222. Me, uh, before the board fills up with too many uh, and people can't get through, a lot of people are already queuing up to uh, ask you about a wide variety of subjects. Al is here in New York City. Hello there, Al. Good morning, Mr. Morano. Great show. Good morning, Dr. Sky. Good morning, Al. Uh, Good, to see you. Good to be with you. Thank yeah. You. you know, I saw that satellite the other day. I remember seeing uh, Made in China, courtesy U.S. technology. <laughs> there you go. I love it there, Al. You know, it's yeah. amazing. That's probably funny. what you could see with the, with the camera and the big telescope that I was talking about. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I, I've seen when I was a kid, I would get up at camp. They say, oh, look at the shooting stars. You look, you look. Yeah, I might see something fly by. But mm-hmm. once, at eh, 10 o'clock at night, once I saw... Have you ever seen like when a uh, a flare gun goes off? 
Yes. Or if you're in the Army or the Navy and you see that, sure. you know, when they, they put the uh, – unbelievable. I saw this thing go by so quick. The whole sky lit up. So oh, yeah. uh, I guess that's an, a meteorite. Now, my question to you is this. Uh, how often do we hear now, now and then a meteorite came so close? I mean, in reality, it's still a quarter million miles or whatever, but they don't see it coming. And what I heard was – I don't know if this is correct. Please help me if you could on this – Sure. It appears that the way we've been looking at them, there's actually a distortion and it's in an oblique angle that we're thinking, no, not near us. And then we find out for the correction that guess what? It really is close to us. Oh, yeah. You know? Al, you're uh, onto something big. Recently. Yeah, you're onto something big here. What you're seeing when you see these objects, like you were describing, the brighter ones, they're called fireballs. And oh, it was unbelievable. Are, oh, yeah, this is amazing. And actually, it's better than some of the Fourth of July rockets and. People have said, wow, you know, what the heck was that? But no, you're actually seeing something. Because it's so when you look. Oh, yeah. When you look at a fireball, Al, this is probably the average height that that is above the Earth. You're probably looking at something that's about 50 or 60 miles, maybe even a little higher, above you. And what's surprising, and this is amazing too, Frank, when you see these objects, most of these are not the size of a basketball. I mean, that would be tremendously bright. Though Those things are called bolides. They're like they a little speck. Oh, yeah, this this little thing that we're talking about here, Al, is amazing. The size of it's probably the average size of these meteors that you see in the sky, the shooting stars, so-called. They're about the size uh-huh. of a grain of sand. People can't believe that, but they're going so fast, and they're incinerating. Can I ask you, the one that, that hit Russia in the, in the early 1900s, that just devastated. I think they called it tongue or something. You what got was it. the size of that? Well, it was called that was the just Tunguska. unbelievable. Right, the Tunguska event that happened on June the 30th, 1908. The object purportedly was about maybe 100 to 150 feet in diameter. And now the other one that's probably even more of a record breaker is right here in my home state of Arizona. The alleged meteor crater that's up there just to the right of Flagstaff, Arizona. Oh, that's huge. Oh, yeah. It was created. And people need to see this, Frank. I don't know. I mean, not to be part of the Tourism Bureau of Arizona, but it's (laughs) over a mile wide. Al, it was created by an object thought to be only 200 feet in diameter. 50,000 years ago, came in at an angle like 30 degrees. And I can imagine it's like having a nuclear weapon hit the ground. That's one of the best preserved craters. And that was only 200 feet across. And the other one that happened in uh, in Russia back in, in 2013, that one, the Chelyabinsk event, that was a 66-foot in diameter object. And that alone sent about 1,000 or more people to the hospital, not because of the object cracking up and hitting them, but it was the that incredible was daylight one, right? Oh, yeah, that's the one that's so documented on YouTube. But that one, Al, was actually the, the, the blast effects of that were the shock wave that came through the atmosphere, breaking windows. And so many windows. No, oh, it's amazing. Al, thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in just a minute. My guest for the hour is the one and only Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. If you want to know more about uh, the kind of stories that he's covering, not only should you keep listening, but you should check out the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. I get a lot of the content that uh, we do on this show uh, from that blog, at least having to do with space. And uh, it's really an incredible resource. Check it out, KTAR.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Your splendor. Dark moon. What is the cause your light withdraws? Is Dark Moon is by Gale Storm. Well, if you're somebody that enjoys just looking at the moon and wondering what else is out there and uh, having a more thorough understanding of the things that you are seeing, then you are listening to the right broadcast because. We are joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran edutainer who has a great deal of expertise when it comes to space. And he's somebody that uh, we're very lucky to have on this show uh, regularly. He's also a regular on uh, the Cats Roundtable, our flagship broadcast every Sunday morning from 8 until 10 a.m. 
Uh, Steve, this is a pretty noteworthy week in the annals of uh, space exploration history. It was 60 years ago this week that John Glenn did something pretty extraordinary, didn't he? Absolutely. It's so amazing. I remember as a fellow New Yorker, Frank, watching with my family, just as a boy about six years young, we're watching on our little black and white television, as many, many people were, to see America's first astronaut to orbit the Earth, John Glenn. What an amazing story. What an amazing member of the Mercury 7. And that launch, as Walter Cronkite and others on different networks, you know, analyzed Walter Cronkite, of course, being like the, the guru of all the space program you know, missions. We remember it, but it's hard to believe that it's some 60 years ago that he was launched on top of that modified Atlas rocket and spending you know, some, a short amount of time in space. Because remember, a lot of people have it mixed up, and it's not their fault. It's just that in space history, when we say we go to space, we go to space. But Alan Shepard was the first American to go into space, but his was a suborbital flight, which is very much like what Jeff Bezos is doing and what Elon Musk will be doing and Richard Branson is doing. He went up, but he actually went higher, Alan Shepard. He went up to about 101 miles, whereas the Bezos craft with Blue Origin goes upward a little higher than the 50-mile mark. So we have this first person for America to make this orbit around the Earth, but he wasn't the first person to orbit the Earth. Yuri Gagarin, the first, obviously, person to orbit the Earth, was, of course, the Russian cosmonaut, and he did that at a little earlier time. But what makes John Glenn's flight so interesting, in my opinion, is that from that launch on that modified Atlas rocket, he orbited the Earth three times, was in space for about four hours and 55 minutes and some odd seconds. But the backstory here is kind of interesting. As he's in in that launch mode, he's looking out his window, and he could see all of the peninsula of Florida. And that was a big deal then because nobody really got to get up that high. But he was traveling at about four and a half miles per second to do your 17,000-mile-an-hour thing to go into Earth orbit. But here's what the backstory is. It's interesting. Mission Control noticed a flashing light on one of their consoles, and it had something to do with a thing that's so important, Frank, called the heat shield. And they were getting this intermittent light coming off, like if you're driving your car and you're getting a check engine light maybe flashing or something, and you're going, what the heck is that? Well, they didn't actually tell John Glenn what was going on, but he was smart enough to kind of figure it out. They simply thought that the heat shield was about to detach, And that's not a good thing, obviously, when you're trying to come back at such high velocities and great temperatures. So the good news is that was a faulty light. He came back to Earth. And it's so amazing because a lot of people forget that he actually went back to space when he was, what, 77 years young Mm. on another ride on the American space shuttle. But I had the honor. I don't know. Have you ever spoken with with, uh, John Glenn? No, uh, never. I never have. I uh, I wanted to very badly, but uh, just didn't work out. We had a great interview with him, and what was, it, what was it all about, Frank? It was all about Space Day, and, you know, what a professional. I mean, that's when he was in the Senate. You know, he, he was apologizing, and he said to me on, on this interview, he said, don't I have to apologize. My voice sounds like Kermit the Frog today because of all the pollen in Washington. And I was like, wow, you know, I just was enamored by this guy because who wouldn't be? I mean, oh, yeah, a, real a Marine, hero. a fighter pilot, and he sadly passed away, uh, what, at about 95 years old, and on to the infinite, but I thought that's important because America and so many people got really motivated for the future of space because we did it, the Russians had done it, and now we've, we felt that we had reached a higher plane, as we say, ad astra to the stars. You know, he is featured in that film, uh, Hidden Figures, which uh, did so well at the Academy yes. Awards a few years ago. Based on your knowledge of uh, of history, Putting aside its artistic contributions, how accurate is that film, Hidden Figures, as far as you are aware? Well, I remember seeing it a while ago, too, and I can only say this much, Frank. I think it's fairly accurate because it goes to talk about the backstory about how so many Americans, uh, black African-Americans, many women, of course, helped to get us to the uh, space area and move on to the moon. But I thought the depiction was actually pretty good. I mean, some movies go out and, you know, they do their own thing. Sometimes they say the books never follow, you know, the, the, the screenwriters never you know, follow what the book was or the original novels. But I thought it was pretty good. And, and I thought it did a good depiction of that entire time and gave that feeling about, you know, we seem to all be working together in the thing called the space race. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Philadelphia. Robert, you're on with Steve Cates. I uh, love the show. Enjoy both you guys a lot. Um, is Thank there you. a way that we can like send questions to to uh, Mr. Kate or Dr. Kate through online yeah. or something? 
Oh, yeah. that's uh, Well, I'll give it out here. It's just very simple. My email, it's always welcome. We get them from many other places. Is just drsky, Dr. Sky Show at gmail.com. And I take the time, as always, because I'm so grateful for the listeners, Frank, of your show and other shows that are interested in this subject. So drskyshow at gmail.com. I will be looking for you because I had something relating to gravity and, and electromagnetic sure. fields, but it's too weighty for now. But I'm curious <laughs> okay. about something. Yes. And I don't want to sound ignorant, okay, but no. and I'm not going to make you harken back to Bugs Bunny jumping off the plane right before it hits the ground. But <laughs> whenever we whenever we come back to Earth, there's always the, the risk of burning up because mm-hmm. of the velocity that we're going at, and we don't have enough ablative shields or whatnot. Right. Why couldn't we just make ourselves come to a stop relative to Earth and let gravity pull us in slowly? Am I missing something? Well, I think we're all missing something because, unfortunately, what we have, Robert, is gravity rules. And, again, what I was talking about, about the possibility that his heat shield, John Glenn's, might have been, you know, detached. Lucky he wasn't. The reality is you're being pulled in so fast. And the most horrific example is some Russian cosmonauts that actually came back through the atmosphere when their heat shield and their parachute system didn't work. That was a very sad splat into the Earth. But again, I'd be more than happy to go into the real details with you if we have some opportunity to share that information with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you, Robert. 800-848-WABC. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Okay. When I was a child, I read in a science book about the green flash, and Mm -hmm. I looked at a lot of sunsets looking for the green flash. Do you believe in it? Absolutely. And I've seen it so many times. What it is, Bill, it's an atmospheric effect. And we all know that when the sun's setting or the moon's rising or the sun is rising, more likely when the sun is setting, you get to see that light through thicker layers of the atmosphere. And what happens, very simply, Bill, is that at that last moment when the upper limb of the sun is slowly going down below the horizon, best seen, by the way, over an ocean, I have seen this. So it's what it's doing, it's refracting light like a prism. And for just a fraction of a second, you can, not always, not always, depends on the atmospheric uh, temperatures, you know, the different layers. There can be a couple of different thermal layers out in the ocean. The best thing I've ever seen was out in San Diego. And I'm sure you could see this, you know, if you're somewhere on the Atlantic Ocean, but you'd have to look to the west. And then another thing, there's also something called a blue flash, which is even more of a rare phenomenon. But it's a real atmospheric effect, Bill. It's called a green flash. And actually, there's some famous artists, forgive me for not knowing at this early hour, that have actually done drawings and done depictions of their artwork after seeing and becoming uh, enamored and enthused by seeing that rare atmospheric thing called the green flash. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Hi, uh, it's Tom. Uh, good, good morning, Frank. Good morning, Dr. Sky. Good morning, John. Uh, is there an, isn't there an app for um, watching or tracking the stars and satellites, including the International Space Station? Well, there is. And what I was mentioning before there, I mean, these are public domain sites. Again, I, I'm thinking the best one that I can think of is heavens-above.com. To me, that one really rocks because you can put in your location anywhere, and it will calculate just right down to the second what satellites are visible. And if you really want to get fancy with that one, you can actually find on a given night Let's say, John and Bill and, and Frank, that we're sitting outside, let's say, in the super dark Arizona skies or up in upper New York State. You can actually tweak that thing to actually give you more satellites, meaning fainter and fainter and fainter, that you can have a list of satellites for a night that's probably about 2,000 satellites if you're in dark enough skies. It's that good, and it's accurate really well. So it's right down to the minute. Interesting story I mentioned yesterday, and I'm curious to get your your mm-hmm. take on it, is – Yesterday, or actually, I guess technically it was uh, two years ago. Yesterday was the um, the or not. Excuse me, not two years ago. Two days ago. What two, this week was the one year anniversary of an American Airlines incident in New Mexico, in which uh, an American Airlines uh, pilot seems to describe what can only be described as a, as a UFO on radio transmission. These transmissions have yes. been confirmed as authentic. Here's a little bit of the transmission. have any targets up here? We just had something go right over the top of us. That, I hate to say this looked like a long cylindrical object. It almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing moving really fast that went right over the top of us. That description was so detailed that it shook a lot of experts 
at the time, and it's been covered a great deal over the course of the last year. As somebody that follows aviation and astronomy and uh, that has a, a keen interest in this stuff, what's your take on that? Well, Frank, it's amazing. It's one of the great mysteries out there. And now the whole entire UFO story has transferred to a whole new name called UAP, is Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. And this is exactly one of the classics. And I really believe those pilots, obviously, they saw something. I have no idea what that was. But it also goes part and parcel to the very strange things that we're seeing within the last decade, up to and including, as, the, as we have the United States Navy reporting, seeing these tic-tac-type objects, which totally defy every law of aerodynamics. And probably, I doubt very much if it's a man-made or earth-made, you know, a human-created cre- type of craft. But it goes back. There's one story here, if we have a moment here, I just wanted to highlight, because the strangeness of all this, probably one of the strangest stories that I've ever talked about or listened to or actually interviewed someone, was the 1967 Maelstrom Air Force Base incident in which one of these gentlemen, he was a captain at the time, Captain Robert Salas, actually reported by his own, you know, the MPs on the base, the Air Force Military Police, they reported seeing these bright or a bright red object hover over these missile flights. They called it echo flight, where the nuclear missiles in the ground, the Minuteman missiles. This is so strange because even talking to this gentleman, he wrote a book called Faded Giant. And I didn't know this, but if a military uh, nuclear weapon system goes offline, it's simply referred to in the military jargon as a faded giant. So what happened really quickly is that this object, some red ball of energy, intentionally went over each one of these silos. I believe there were 10 in the ground in that one called Echo Flight. And what it did, Frank, it just shut down every one of the missiles. And when the engineers came back the next day to examine what had happened, to try to figure out what what was this back in 1967, obviously something otherworldly, not only did it shut the missiles down, but those cables that attached to the bottom of these missiles, I'm not the rocket scientist there, but it's reported that there were probably like maybe 10-inch wide wires and cables. A lot of those were actually melted and shut down the entire uh, missile silos. So I'm saying we're seeing more and more of these things, but it goes back that some of these things, well, it's just, well, totally unexplainable. And, and maybe, without a doubt, other otherworldly things that we don't know. And even mm. in modern day, airline pilots seeing more and more of these things flying over in the sky, uh, up to including these Tic Tacs. It's just strange. Th- th- there's been some thinking that 2022 could be a banner year for the the cause of uh, UAP disclosure by the federal government. Do you buy that at all? I don't know. For the longest time, I'd like to be an optimist, Frank. But sincerely, I think, you know, I think we've been given, you know, the disinformation since day one on this whole thing. And I'd like to know, just like every single person out there, I'd like to know the real story of what Roswell was all about. What about the Corona crash or what about these other incidents around the world, not just here in America? But I would hope, but I have to be more of a pessimist on this. And the answer probably is we're probably not going to know the answer. I don't know why we're not going to know the answer. But again, one of my theories, and this is kind of interesting, I'm exploring this more, and who knows, maybe I'll even write a book about this. I think these phenomenon that we're seeing, like the Tic Tacs and so many of these others, are actually not from other planetary systems. I think what happened, Frank, and I know maybe listeners may think I'm a little off my chair here, but if you think about it, maybe the world, like the God forbid the Ukrainian crisis, escalates into a horrible war beyond our wildest dreams. Hopefully there's cooler heads. But let's say the human species winds up getting destroyed because of our own you know, non, non-study of history, sure. and we sure. see it repeat. But the quick cut to the chase on it is, it's, to my life, it's in my mind thinking this way, that humankind went underground, they had to survive, but artificial intelligence came in and actually took over everything. So in the future... Artificial intelligence understood how to bend time and space, which we're trying to figure out the whole world of quanta. And the final analysis would be that what happens with these particular devices or or objects that we're seeing, and again, in my opinion, just one person out there, that this could be the future of which we see these artificial machines and even maybe sentient beings. Maybe those Tic Tacs are living organisms that come through the time-space-time continuum through the whole thing of the warpage of time, through an artificial intelligence experience, maybe not driven by future humans. Wow. What say you? Well, I, you know, I, I mentioned there was a Space.com article which mentioned that sure. possibility, and I, I brought it up uh, because I think it's just fascinating. 
uh, to is. think about that. I think it's it's really, sure. uh, really interesting. 800-848-WABC. Hudson is in the Bronx. Hello, Hudson. Wow, man. Great show, guys. That last thing you just said, I tried to write down everything. Amazing. Um, good morning, Hudson. Thank you. Be... Oh, good morning. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, my question is going to sound so stupid now. Um, I, I got two of them. The first one is... Uh, my nephew is starting to get interested in this stuff. So just the two questions that I have is, uh, number one, uh, obviously we're from New York, but we're going to travel. Um, I've been in Australia and I've seen the, the stars out there, you know, in the middle of the yes. desert. What's the, what's the closest place uh, to go camping where you can see anything close to that in the sky? And you are right in the New York metro area. I'm sorry. I didn't in the Bronx. Yeah, he's in, in the, the Bronx. Bronx. Oh, okay. Well, very simple. My suggestion as a, you know, fellow New Yorker in the past, we used to do a lot of programs up at a place called High Point State Park, which is right at the top tip of New Jersey, up there near Port Jervis. And I don't think the skies, Frank and Hudson, have changed that much. But getting away from the city lights even that far, or that close, I should say, is great. But if you really want to take an excursion, I would head when the weather kind of warms up a little better, maybe up through upper New York State, as you move up just south of Montreal, like Plattsburgh area and the lakes up there. I mean, I've seen skies uh, that close to the New York area that are pretty darn good. And up into New Hampshire, if you want to travel a little farther, there's still some good dark skies. But New Jersey's uh, high point, that's a place that I believe is uh, dramatically good. Well, did you have a second question, Hudson? I do, yeah, and thank you for that. The second question is, um, I got I got a really cheap, um, you know, telescope for them. It's a, mm-hmm. it was a Vivitar sixty times one twenty, whatever. What's okay. what's the best one on the market um, that's in a price range for for a kid that's just looking to see something in the sky, like all the things that you said before, which I wrote down all the times and dates for. Oh, thank you, Hudson. Here, this is a great question. I'll answer it here. My suggestion is if you're going to go out and buy maybe a little store-bought telescope and you're looking for the best, there's a little type of telescope called a Dobsonian, just that name, Dobsonian. If you look them up, you can get like a little six-inch telescope. They're basic. You know, they don't have all the fancy motors and everything. You don't really need that. It's just a tube, good piece of glass in the bottom. You know, it's a mirror. You, it puts in a little cradle. It's like, like, it looks, almost looks like something you made in home shop you know, or in school shop. But it's something that you could probably buy for a couple of hundred dollars. They're all over the Internet. A little Dobsonian telescope. Believe me, it, it's it's the coolest little thing. And, and for the money, you get to see uh, some pretty darn good things with that. That's By the way, two very good questions, uh, Hudson. Excellent questions. Yes, both. thank you, Hudson. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Uh, we're talking with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. Uh, this is exactly the kind of content that I'd love to see focused on uh, our website one day at wabcradio.com because it's the kind of thing you really can only hear from uh, Dr. Sky. Steve, what is a space elevator? You know, this is something fascinating. Everybody's concerned today about getting rockets up. And by the way, they're doing a pretty damn good job, in my opinion, because they've superseded so much of NASA's efforts. You know, the people like Jeff Bezos, the people who have the money like Elon Musk. So we're using chemical rockets right now to get payloads to space. And it used to be at one time, it was like $1,000 a pound to launch something up into space. And I think the numbers have changed. But anyway, here's something that goes back a long time. And it was developed, this whole concept of a space elevator was developed by the father of Soviet rocketry. It was a man named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. And he wrote back in 1895 this object. And the concept is to stretch a super tensile strength cable, (laughs) maybe people will laugh, made of a nanotube technology, this is what I'm saying, they didn't know about that then, from the equator to a fixed point in space beyond the geostationary point. So way up at 22,000 miles, you know, how we have these HBO satellites and all these different television satellites sitting up there at 22,000 miles, you would stretch this cable, and at the high end, the massive counterweight would keep the cable tight, And the cable would rotate with the Earth. I know people may think this is bizarre. And it would use centrifugal force to keep it useful. So climbers, obviously in spacesuits, or you could have a large module like a building go up this thing. And cargo would go up the cable to a designated distance in space. And then from there, you could then dock with another spacecraft or a space station. Now, the problematic thing is we don't really have, even if you took Kevlar cable, 
it's not strong enough. The tensile strength's not strong enough. If you took diamond thread, if there was even such a thing that you could fabricate cheaply. So there's this new technology called nanotube technology that could very well one day do this. But from science fiction, many people may remember from Star Wars, the city in the sky was called Bespin or Cloud City. And that was held up by gas. But this whole concept, Frank, is as strange as it may sound to people, could be a way to have us go up into the upper regions of space and do it. But the problematic thing, finally, is you've got to have that tensile strength cable. And, oh, boy, would that cable be really fat and big. As you get higher and higher, you need a much more uh, you know, wide-width diameter cable. But something that's on the drawing boards. There's actually engineers and companies that are even looking at this as a plausible idea. And it could be done probably cheaper and better on planetary systems that have less gravity than the Earth. Or in other words, even on an asteroid system, they could do this. Babby's an interconnect transportation system. 800-848-WABC. If you have questions for Steve Cates, we'll continue with your calls in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space. This is the other side of midnight. That's Elton John singing Rocket Man. Not nearly as moving as the William Shatner rendition of this particular song, but it's still good. Still good. It has its own has its own style. Uh, talking about all things related to space with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. Uh, you can follow his work and read the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. We're lucky enough to have him on regularly on this show. He's also a regular contributor to the Cats Roundtable on Sunday morning whenever there's some big space news. Uh, Steve, uh, a lot of people eager to talk with you. No way we're going to get to everybody in the course of the next 10 minutes, but we're going to do the best that we can. Uh, let me say hello to Dave here in Manhattan. Hello, Dave. Good, good morning, gentlemen. Dr. Sky, a few years ago on a summer Friday night, I was aboard the Intrepid Sea Air Space Museum. I attended an amateur astronomer's event. I'm not an amateur astronomer. I looked through the telescope, which was attached to a very large monitor, and they showed me Saturn and its rings. Then they showed me I could see it with my naked eye. I'm interested in learning, if I'm standing on the sidewalk of New York City, what planets, what stars, what celestial bodies can I see with the naked eye, and what is the best time of year for such viewing? Great question, Dave, and here's the answer. Right now, if we look into our time machine here, as I mentioned before, in the early morning hours, you can get a glimpse if you have a clear view, unobstructed to the southeast, you'll see Venus, the most brilliant planet in the sky. What you'll also see, just a little bit to the lower right, and I'm talking about with a pair of binoculars, you still will be able to see the planet Mars. You can see Mars with the naked eye as it'll start to get higher in the sky. What's happening, Dave, is Jupiter is now moving into the sun, so you can't see it at all in the glare. But as we move out to the remainder of this year, into the 2022, both Saturn, as you mentioned before, a planet, you'll be able to see with the naked eye come around summer, right around the middle part of the year, June and July. You'll see Jupiter. Those two objects are easy to see with the naked eye. You'll continue to see Mars by the end of the year. Dave, Mars will become bright once again, as bright as the International Space Station as we move toward December. And again, the locations in the sky, I'm sure that we'll be talking, what, Frank, in the future on the show mm -hmm. here about the exact times as we move and progress through the year. But, Dave, you can see a lot of planets, and I've done this even when I lived in the New York area. We used to do some telescopes and set them up in Central Park. You could still see some things in the sky other than the sun, you know, the moon, and some of the bright planets. Still pretty good, and even the space station, even from the brightly lit area of Manhattan. Thank you, Dave. 800-848-WABC. It's 800-848-9222. Jay is in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hello, Jay. 
Dr. Sky, my favorite program on WABC, Frank. Oh, thank you, Jay. Appreciate that. Thank sorry you. About, sorry about the Bengals. I was there for you, too. <laughs> That's it. People are still crying here. Grown men are crying their <laughs> eyes out. We're running out of tissues in the grocery stores. Now, Jay, are you the guy that was telling me about your family legacy, about your, your family was involved with something with uh, the Norton sites or something? Or you're a different day? Yes, I am. Jay, yes, yes, I am. You're the my day. grandfather worked yeah. for Sperry Gyroscope. Oh, there you go. And, I'm sorry. I remember. Yeah. Yes. And also, he made the telescope down at the, is it the Hayden Planetarium. Yes, yes. There you in, go. In the, yeah, yes. Well, he was the guy who helped everybody grind their lenses, hand grind their lenses. That's amazing. Okay. Sperry found out about his hobby. He was a precision machinist, and he was making optical flats for the guidance systems of the early missile systems. Awesome. It was really high-tech stuff in its day. He was he was one of their golden employees. Wow. And uh, I still have this telescope to this day, a homemade telescope. Basically. Jay, I just want to get some other people in here. So what's your question? I want to try and get in as many folks as we can. Yes. What what happened to the Sky and Telescope magazine? Well, you mean what happened? I mean, it's still there. Uh, you can still get it. Well, the problem is you can get it, but unfortunately, like when I try to search for it, even here in Arizona, very few, as not as many newsstands or or stores. I don't think there's newsstands anymore. They don't seem to care. But you'd have to call. You'd have to direct, check with them directly by going to skyandtelescope.com, and I'm sure you can get a subscription through them. Thank you, Jay. Sal is in Flushing. Sal is a uh, a big listener to uh, both of us, Steve. Well, good morning, Sal. Morning, Dr. Sky. Hey, Frank. A pleasure to find you to talk to you. Great program as always. Thank always you. good to hear you, Dr. Sky. Thank sir, you. I would like to ask, yes, sir. I would like to ask, has the distance traveled by a star or a planet's gravitational pull ever been measured? Uh, for example, how far does the gravitational pull of Earth extend into space, and how is the distance determined? Also, do the Lagrange points play a part in determining the distance traveled by a planet or a star's gravitational wave? Well, the, the Lagrange points are a fixed point because of the Earth's gravity. But the point that I see where the Earth's gravity would start to dissipate completely, we're probably looking, and it's not an exact answer here, because I'd have to sit and do something as a calculation. I don't have that handy. But you're probably looking here, just as a fair and general answer, you're probably looking at about 20 to 25 diameters of the Earth, meaning as we go out past the moon, we would start to see a complete depletion, uh, depletion, that is, of the Earth's gravity, but about 20 times the whole diameter of the Earth out into space. Ah, interesting. Yes, and, okay, and, and even some people would say that it's probably, probably farther than that. But the answer is that you'd start to see it drop off pretty dramatically because the major big component in the solar system, there's two biggies, obviously, the solar gravity that's still out there. We have to factor that out because it's also part of the equation with the Earth and the Sun, because we're all this planetary mm -hmm. system. And then don't forget, there's another object out there that also has massive gravity, and it could upset those calculations, and that's the planet Jupiter. And we're kind of lucky that we mm -hmm. have Jupiter, uh, Sal, because Jupiter pulls in so many of the air and asteroids and comets that might hit the Earth, so we're lucky to have Jupiter. But the gravity would be about 20 times the diameter of the Earth in a general answer, Obviously, we could calculate that down and give you a real specific one if we were sitting together. Thank you, Sal. Uh, Steve, before we run out of time here, is there a rocket that's poised to hit the moon? Yes, this is interesting. Really quickly, this is the strange story that we have to report here. We thought, according to calculations by someone in the space industry who knows their stuff, they were saying that on March the 4th, something is going to hit the moon. It's a rocket body. They first thought it was a SpaceX rocket booster that was launched back in 2015. And now the gentleman who did this is kind of changing his mind and saying, no, it's the Chung-5M, uh, which is one of these little rockets that put down a soft lander on the surface of the moon, a Chinese space mission that was launched back in 2014. But now they're saying that it's not that. So I'm confused just to tell everybody that I'm not even sure what the heck's going to hit the moon. And we'll be investigating that and hopefully get you the answers as soon as they determine what the heck it is. It's not mm. the two objects that they thought. Mm, very interesting. Uh, Russell is in Ohio. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. A long-time listener, uh, new caller. I just uh, wondered if uh, Dr. Sky is a ham radio operator. Well, welcome you aboard. You know what? I am not, but I surely would love to be because my next-door neighbor 
is so much involved in that, and uh, he's telling me every day that I should jump on my two-meter uh, thing and do, what is that, 144 megahertz? I'd love yeah, to do that yeah. and not put up with the nonsense that I sometimes hear on uh, CB radios. And uh, imagine that if you needed your radio, at least that's what, a little more uh, professional in the broadcast yeah, you, world. You'd be right in, uh, right in your element because uh, we got uh, what EME. We can bounce signals off the moon, and uh, oh, awesome. we've got, we've got uh, like 25 different satellites around the world that we can uh, transmit on. And uh, I was just wondering, I'm right near where uh, John Glenn grew up in uh, New Concord, wow. Ohio. Well, that's beautiful. And I also understand that there's people out there, right, Russell, that actually talk to the International Space Station. Are they doing oh, it yeah. on two, two, two meters, I think? They're doing it up on two yeah. meters. Two meters up and uh, 440 megahertz down. And I've worked uh, Owen Garrett on the uh, very first uh, shuttle mission. Well, that's awesome, my friend. Now you inspire me because I need to get out there and do I, You don't have to do the Morse code, though, anymore, right, for a license? <laughs> no, no, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier now. I'm glad because I don't think I was doing too good, Frank, with the Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Russell. 800-848-WABC. Nancy's in New Jersey. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Frank, and hello, Steve. Steve good I'd morning, like Nancy. Know, I'd like to know what it is you thought um, our visitor was that we had, what, 14, 15 months ago, and I believe the name of it was Oumuamua. Oh, yes. Here, a quick story on that. Oumuamua was discovered by a good friend of mine named Robert Werrick. He worked out in Hawaii at one of the observatories called the Haleaka Observatory. What he found was this amazing object that was probably, Nancy, the first interstellar, quote, asteroid. In other words, it didn't come from the solar system. It may have come from the star system Vega. Now, they discover it, Nancy, not when it's coming in toward the Earth, but they discover it as it's receding. And the problematic thing with this, according to Dr. Robert Werrick, is that the object, and Frank, this is fascinating, was actually accelerating as it was leaving the solar system. And it's now out past the orbit of Saturn, I believe. But here's interesting concepts. Dr. Evie Loeb of Harvard, who we talk to a lot. Who's been a guest his, on this show as well. Oh, a yeah, great guy. His, well, his, right. His theory on this was, or is, that it's probably some sort of a scout, because in Hawaiian, Oumuamua means scout, and that he believes that it could be, and I underline the word could, some sort of extraterrestrial scouting craft that goes out into the universe, we don't know. And then one theory that was disproven by astronomers, Nancy, is that they thought the acceleration was due to a hydrogen, frozen hydrogen that was actually melting and pushing the object into space. But you know what? I hope they send the spacecraft to catch up with that. Wouldn't that be amazing, Nancy, to find out what it really is? because it's an amazing interloper, the first of the so-called other extrasolar uh, asteroid-type bodies. At least that's what we think right Steve, now. Steve, as it always does, whenever we're together, this hour has just flown by. I can't wait until we can speak again. I look Thank forward you, to uh, your next appearance on the Cats Roundtable as well. Thank you. Have a good morning. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans Back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.